good afternoon and welcome to Noon Edition with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. It is Friday, September 26th, and this week we are joined by some folks both in studio and on the phone who will help uncover the ways that universities craft their messages. Joining us this week uh, on the phone, we have John Beacon. He is the Vice President for Enrollment Management at Indiana State University. In studio, DePaul University Media Relations Director Ken Owen and Indiana University Senior Associate Director of Public Affairs, Angela Tharp. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Before we get started, it is my duty to point out there are a couple of ways you can submit your questions to our panel during the next hour. If you're near a telephone, you may want to write down these next two phone numbers. You can call us from the local area at area code 812 or toll-free from anywhere at area code 877-285-9348. You can also email us a question now or anytime at noon at indiana.edu. So the first question I want to ask all of you is whether you believe in the saying that there is no such thing as bad publicity uh, where the universities are concerned. Is, is this a truism in your minds? Uh, no. <laughs> I'd be that would happy. be a unanimous no. Yeah. I'd be happy to jump in on this. No, there are... Um, I guess even in the worst of situations uh, in a university setting, it does provide you an opportunity to state who you are and what you're about. So there can be some positives that come from extreme negatives. But no, there are there are some times that – and many times that you are very happy not to be the subject of a news report. Uh, it can be a squirrely business. No, I, I think even if, if you're suffering from um, – a reputational drought if you're a school and none of the schools here today are in that situation. But if you're in a situation where you just need to get your name out, uh, having something very unsavory happen on your campus or being associated with such a thing is never a positive. And I think when those kinds of situations occur, dealing with it uh, honestly and directly um, and, and taking the initiative at the beginning sometimes uh, deflates some of the, the uh, possible um, ramifications that can come from not acting fairly promptly. So I'm, I'm curious to know whether you think the size of a school's student body or its alumni base matters in terms of how a message is crafted. In other words, here we've got one very large school, one very small school, and one school that's in the middle of those two. And I'm wondering about your your place in the university food chain as it were, how do you how do you craft your message regarding the, with regard to the size of the school, if at all? Angela, we'll start with you. I mean, forty thousand students here, hundreds of thousands of alumni to whom uh, you have to, with whom you have to communicate. Uh, does that make a difference to you in terms of the the just largesse of the numbers? I think it absolutely makes a difference. It can certainly be challenging. Um, the fortunate thing is that uh, even though I'm in the central office and we actually serve all eight campuses, I have a lot of colleagues out there in individual units and on the various campuses who are there to assist. And, uh, you know, certainly we have a lot of strong sub-brands not just the big Indiana University brand. And so I think all of those things together uh, really complement each other and, and make our brand and make our image. Um, but it is, it is incredibly challenging sometimes to be able to communicate effectively when you have such a big system. Uh, so I think that that requires a lot of systems in place to be able to uh, work collaboratively with your colleagues and make sure that you have some central messages at the top, uh, which are then reinterpreted in individual units uh, for their specific target audiences. Right. You've got so many audiences. You've got alumni, students, parents, even legislators who decide funding um, to some extent, um, uh, donors, sports fans. I, I think each – do you try to tailor your message uh, to, to accommodate each one of those audiences? I think so. I think – and obviously some messages are going to be uh, more pertinent to one audience over another. But um, I think especially when it comes to the area of student recruitment, we are very different schools and there are many, many schools in this country – I think one of the jobs we have is to cut through the clutter and to show people why we are different. I really believe if you've got 10 students in a room and you offer them 10 different college opportunities, you might find that each one has a different 
feel for what their best fit is. So one of my jobs is to let people know that if you come to DePaul University, you're going to be in a class that might have nine or 12 students in it with a professor. There are no teaching assistants. That if you come to campus and want to play football and also be in the musical and uh, sing in the choir and perhaps work on the student newspaper, you can do that from day one. So we each have unique experiences we offer. And I think one of the things that we need to do is uh, like a constant drumbeat in the night, just let people know that this is the place to come if this is something that appeals to you. I've been in this uh, business exclusively for more than 40 years, and I think I've survived in this business because I've never looked at a student in particular as um, uh, a dollar sign. I, I think uh, the right fit uh, is, is critical to this, as Ken was talking about. And, and um, uh, you know, there are, there's a million reasons not to choose a particular school. A student should never be selecting schools because their girlfriend or boyfriend's going there or their best friend's going there or the, their parents are alumni or their school counselor told them that's the place to go. And, and I, I think that there's a lot uh, involved with selecting a school, and not every school obviously is, is perfect for every student. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the beauty of having the three of us on today because we really do represent three uh, very different institutions. And um, um, I... I I never look at it as, as that we're in competition with one another. Uh, I see us disseminating information to students to, for them to make the best decision. I never want to make a decision for a student uh, because then I'm responsible for it, and I, that's the last thing I ever want to be. Now, do you each have in mind, um, you know, this is the kind of student that we are, we're trying to attract when you, when you craft your message? Oh, I think if I can continue that... Uh, Certainly, I, I, I think a lot goes into looking at uh, student characteristics and profiles. Um, when I started in admissions, we were all gatekeepers back in the 60s and 70s, and it was really a matter of, of just uh, sorting out uh, students. This, this business has become very sophisticated, very uh, market-oriented. Um, we do a lot of analysis uh, in terms of, of the right student for the right fit. And a lot of our early connections with students are driven uh, based on, on those profiles. We, we buy search names, for example, as I'm sure all of us do, um, based on certain anticipated fits of students. It's not a perfect science, nor should it ever be a perfect science, but uh, it helps us to sort through a little bit. I have, uh, in in the course of my job, actually no lord over admission publications and and Mm -hmm. the kind of messaging they do. Mm -hmm. So the kind of messaging I do to uh, prospective students largely is is through our website and and via the news we put up there. And I I think – I think that if you if you read the messages as a whole, you'll see that uh, most students that come to DePaul University are are engaged from the the beginning. They've been in leadership roles in their high schools, and I think that would permeate the conscious conscience of a young student as they looked at DePaul. There, again, as Jan said, there are, there are some students that just aren't the right fit for each of our schools, and it, it's no. A slap against them. I mean, obviously, uh, there are many, many different attributes that go into kind of deciding what a college experience should be, and it's a very individual and personal thing. But um, it, I, I know our admission folks spend a lot of time through their publications and the folks that they work with on those in that arena, and yes, that is very important. And I think that our admissions folks also spend a great deal of time trying to get people to our various campuses because there's nothing that is going to help these students understand what is going to be the best fit for them um, other than having that experience on campus, being able to interact with professors, being able to talk to those admissions counselors about what the school can offer. Mm -hmm. And this may be on your list of questions for today. If I can just jump in, Angela, and say if there's one takeaway for parents I hope we leave after an hour with, it's that uh, with U.S. News and World Report and Forbes and Princeton Review and God knows how many other publications out there now ranking schools, Mm -hmm. it's really important to keep your eye on the individual needs of your student. And and for students, not just to look at number one and say that's best or number four is better than number six. Uh, the, the number one film at the box office this year or this week won't necessarily be the one we're talking about in 40 years. So you really have to make a personal decision, visit campuses, and decide what, what do you want out of a college experience. Maybe you want to go to a Big Ten football game every week. Maybe uh, being in a small classroom isn't your cup of tea. But But look at the things that you value 
and don't just rely on a number somewhere and, and you know, check some boxes and, and make a choice long distance. And let me echo what both of my colleagues have said. And I think any student needs to uh, ask themselves, what, what is it that you want from the college experience? And, and the pieces that come together in that uh, analysis are the size of the institution, the location, cost, whether it's urban or rural, uh, how academically challenging the student wants it to be, Name recognition actually pay, plays a role in that, as do extracurricular uh, activities and, and how, how involved students are going to be. But it all comes down to what uh, I heard just a moment ago, and I think maybe Angela said that, and, and it is getting them to campus is absolutely critical. Um, it, a lot of it is driving students to the web today because this millennial student is very, very comfortable uh, w with that sort of uh, analysis of an institution, at least initial analysis, but uh, we always want them to take some action based on having taken a look at us, and, and that is to come and see the campus, because it's truly on, on a campus visit that I think students can really determine whether this is the, the right fit for, for that particular individual or not. John, I wanted to ask you, you've got sort of the medium-sized school in here. How do you how do you market yourself against you've got you know larger competitors like Purdue and IU that have that big school feel? Then there are many many small schools also in the state. And here's ISU right in the middle. How do you how do you differentiate yourself and how do you sell being in the middle? Sure, and I, I think uh, from our perspective, um, and my colleagues probably wouldn't I wouldn't expect them to to agree with us, but but our niche is being sort of in the middle. We. We, I think, provide the best of both opportunities. We are one of the four uh, research universities in the state of Indiana. Uh, we're the smallest of those. So for the student that's looking for a public education uh, at a, a research comprehensive institution where there's lots of choices, um, they can find that at Indiana State University where still the classes are, are relatively small um, and our costs are fairly competitive. So we're really uh, sitting, I feel, uh, from a marketing perspective, in a pretty good place. I have an issue that I'd like each of you to address specifically. Angela, I'll, I'll start with you. Recently, there were seven IU students who posed in Playboy magazine. And admittedly, we live in a pretty conservative state. And there, there have been a few people who have said they weren't sure if, if this is the kind of way that they want IU and its students to be portraying themselves. And I, I'm wondering... Is it still better to have a mention of IU in the magazine, regardless, in this case, of its context in its you know, purest form? No. <laughs> no, I really don't think so. I think it uh, it goes back to what Ken was saying at the beginning that that you know not all publicity is is good publicity, and we'd prefer not to have our name associated with that sort of thing at all. Um, on the other hand, uh, we're dealing with. Um, a large collection of young people who are adults and they're going to make the decisions that they want to make. So uh, even though we are concerned about our image and reputation as Indiana University, uh, they have the right to be who they want to be and to display themselves as they want to display themselves so long as uh, they're not violating any of our specific policies. But no, I would personally prefer that we not have our name associated <laughs> with that. <laughs> and I would say, Angela, I think the toughest things we deal with are probably those situations in which students misbehave or do things that we wish they hadn't done only because it reflects on the kind of students we tend to admit. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's one thing if the Princeton Review puts you on the party school list because we can all stand in front of people and, and without breaking into a, a lie at all uh, – test the methodology of the Princeton mm -hmm. Review and, and basically take it apart as, as made up, which is essentially what it is. But when our students cross the line, it's very difficult. And, and yet, you know, when you join the Elks Club or you join the Neighborhood Association, you really have no control over what the other members of that organization do. And in any community, there are people who are going to cross the line and make mistakes. And, we, and part of the, the educational process, I think, is to make a mistake and learn from it. We've all done it. So... Uh, I think that uh, these things all pass uh, and, and in terms of the, what the students uh, did with Playboy, you know, it, it's a decision they made and many of them consulted with family members and, and life goes on. Uh, it's, it's, it's the more serious situations that tend to have longer term ramifications that bother you. But uh, yes, the, uh, I think at, at a certain point, uh, the university has to distance itself from 
student behavior, but at the same time provide a mechanism to support students and to help them in, in times when they've perhaps made choices that are drawing attention to them that they feel uncomfortable with over time. I do think, though, you – I'm sorry. I, I do think, though, you made a really good point that, you know, this is the kind of thing that's short-term – and um, I don't think that we as an institution can get too caught up in those kinds of things that are going to come and go. Um, the bottom line is, yes, we might be on the front page of the newspaper and we don't like it, but that's for a day. And there are a lot of people who are cleaning up their cat poop with that, <laughs> with that paper. Um, so I think that we can place a little too much importance sometimes on uh, how big these kinds of negative publicity are. We also I do have uh, opportunities periodically uh, to um, say no before things occur, and that's through sponsorships. We're, we're probably all contacted. I can think of some pageants that have uh, requested sponsorship um, uh, to be hosted on the campus. And, and those are the kinds of things that we can say. Uh, we really would rather pass on that. We don't think that's appropriate way for us to be uh, spending our money or marketing the university if we don't think that it fits into uh, our marketing plan. It is always nice when we're asked first, isn't it? It is. <laughs> oh, it really is. How rare those opportunities are. And, and that actually leads into my question for John, which is that you know a report earlier this year placed ISU and I, I suppose I should mention DePaul on the same list that said that they were two schools in some of the most boring places in the country to go to school and. You know, Ken said that the methodology is is sometimes derided. Uh, sometimes, <laughs> and 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 so I'm wondering, how do you handle a, a list like this, whose whose creation you cannot control? Um, there, there's certainly that's absolutely true. There's there's certainly some control over which we have no control. Um, that wasn't well said, but that, you get what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that we we always have the opportunity in marketing to uh, promote uh, um, what's what's particularly good about our community. Um, I know that that Terre Haute uh, has uh, suffered in the past from uh, not being close to a, a large metropolitan area, but uh, Terre Haute is truly a place where there's there's a lot of things going on. And in fact, we're talking right now about linking our website to some of the more interesting activities. Uh, that are available, and and in fact, this this time of year in Terre Haute, from now through the end of October, virtually every weekend, there are festive festivities going on. There's an art festivity going on this weekend, and there was a jazz festivity a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it's family uh, weekend and a, around a football game. So, um, we need to do a better job than we've done perhaps in the past of promoting those kinds of things, but. Uh, like any community, I, I think that if people are interested, they can find things to do that are uh, fun and exciting. Absolutely, John. And uh, in Greencastle, uh, we just, in the, in the town, in the city, received from the Indiana Association of Cities and Towns the Green City Award, which we're sharing with Bloomington for this year. Uh, Greencastle is becoming a more vibrant place. The mayor, Sue Murray, is is diligent uh, and, and, and working very hard at, at bringing the community and the campus closer together. So there there are a lot of things happening. I, I think that, uh, again, if, if, if you look at the Princeton Review, and I don't want to spend more than a, a minute on this, but uh, it shows on their website that every three years they do a survey. They put a book out every year. So two of those years, they're either relying on old data or just – essentially making it up. And they also will not share with any of us how many students they query. Also, until very recently, and this still may be the case, I could get on there and log in as a student and say, I just find this town vile. And, you know, this, this campus community is terrible and the professors are boring. I mean, even even if I'd never even set, uh, stepped foot on that campus. So I, I think, again, consumer beware. Uh, it's It's great that we have these kind of dialogues. But at the end of the day, uh, if you're publishing something and it's not fact-based and if you won't share the methodology with the end user, um, I'm not sure it's a valid instrument. Ken, isn't that even an opportunity to, to kind of work? I mean, you talk, we talk about spinning things. I mean, I can see how you could spin that to parents and say, yeah, you know, maybe this isn't a, a big metropolitan area, but there's a lot going on at our school. Yeah, we, we do occasionally in our jobs have to do a bit of that spinning stuff. But uh, I think this is one of those times where uh, – and I, I'm a real believer in full disclosure and just lay it all out. This is one of those times where you just tell people uh, this is how this survey, or if you want to call it that, is put together. And uh, 
I think it, it gets back to what we were talking about at the beginning, and that is the parents and the students need to come to the community mm-hmm. and see if they're comfortable there. And uh, just to throw a, a dart on the board and say uh, Akron, Ohio is boring without having been there is really unfair to everybody involved. Mm-hmm. And I think every college town, every college city suffers from this to some degree. I mean, if you look at Indiana University's eight campuses, sure, we have – uh, a campus in Indianapolis, the biggest city. We have Bloomington, uh, which I think inside the state of Indiana is is considered a really wonderful place to be. I mean, I, I was actually saying before this show that last week I had the opportunity in the course of four days to listen to Nina Totenberg, to go to a concert with Josh Bell, and to hear Madeleine Albright four days, mm-hmm. all of it completely free. I mean, mm-hmm. that's pretty incredible. With that said, however, there are plenty of out-of-state students who have the perception that Indiana is podunk. And so it doesn't really matter that we have these incredible opportunities here if they don't know about them. And I would have to say that instead of spinning, our job in many respects is informing, mm-hmm. informing people accurately. Mm-hmm. about what we offer. And if I could just piggyback, I'm sorry, John, to jump in here, but we had Madeleine Albright last week and Lee Hamilton and we have Tony Blair in the spring. One of the things that really just upsets me, frankly, is when we have people like Tony Blair to campus and you walk out the door after the event and you see students out playing Frisbee golf. Uh, I think those are some of the same students who may be among the 30 who fill out the survey every three years and check this place is boring. Uh, it's really what you make it. I think that that every college environment has something to offer most of its students. And I'm frustrated sometimes by how few students avail themselves of those opportunities. I've had the joy in my life of working at eight universities uh, in the last 40 years from the University of Nebraska to Maine, and there's quite a variation in those institutions. But one of the things that I've never been disappointed in is and living in a college town, and and I think Angela mentioned something about that, that there is something special about a, a college town, no matter the size of the university, uh, and what those those colleges typically will bring, uh, both in terms of uh, athletic events as well as cultural events. Um, and uh, you seldom have to travel very far, and you certainly don't have to pay normally what it would typically cost to attend some of these events, in larger venues. So uh, for me, uh, it's just been wonderful. And I think the opportunities that have been opened up to my family, uh, having had the experience of living in in always college towns, uh, has been uh, far richer for us than it might have been had we lived uh, in a town that that wasn't uh, uh, filled with, with colleges. My my last question is for Ken before we take our break. Uh, early in the decade, DePaul was uh, sued by a professor who felt that her job description had been wrongfully, you know, decreased. That suit was eventually thrown out. Um, But you spent an entire summer fighting the public relations about this uh, with people all the way up to Pat Robertson on whose Mm -hmm. program the story appeared. And uh, from talking to you at the time, I know that you firmly believed in the university's case beginning to end. And and in the end, your belief was proved correct. But I'm wondering what happens uh, and, and, and maybe can you conceive of a case where your beliefs might not fall in line with what the university uh, asked of you or what uh, administrators in the university felt was best for DePaul's image? How would you handle that sort of, you know, that sort of inter- internal battle? I'm not sure I've had that happen yet. I'd, I'd really have to give that some deep thought. I know that um – well, I, I'm a pretty honest broker and I, I suspect my colleagues are too and I need to be a voice at the table when we're talking about how these issues are going to be dealt with publicly. Um, I, I really, again, believe full disclosure is key and uh, uh, I went to DePaul University and I was on the alumni board for many years and so I, I believe my values are pretty well in tune with DePaul University. So I, I, I've not really hit the wall in, in a case where I just felt that the president or the board of trustees or whoever was making a decision was you know, off the reservation. And that's, that's a good thing because I think as a communicator, the key is that, uh, that you align with that which you are messaging about. And uh, so in that, in that, in that, uh, in that uh, area, I guess I'm, I'm very lucky and I'm, I'm sure my colleagues feel the same way that you really need to be a voice at the table 
as you start to discuss how you're going to talk about these things. And, and it's interesting that the things that tend to take up most of your time are, are these things where someone kind of starts a fire somewhere and it's a small fire and it involves very few people but it gets some attention from the outside. And we're in kind of a gotcha media culture where it's not really uh, – there aren't too many reporters out there doing stories about our schools of music or – you know, the, the, some of the really neat things our mm-hmm. students are doing in terms of community engagement, they're really kind of interested in the quirky, offbeat, and usually uh, unfortunate things that happen. And, uh, and that's really sad because I think the, the story of higher education is not being told in the way it should be. All right. Well, we have to take a break. We'll come back with the conclusion of this week's Noon Edition. Please stay with us. Listening to Noon Edition on member supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332 2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington www.southdunnstreet.info If you're a person on the go, you can take WFIU programs with you. We're podcasting. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer. Listen anytime from your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game musical mini quiz and movie play and opera reviews. You can find out how with a visit to our website at wfiu.org. We are back on Noon Edition. Joining us today on the phone, John Beacon from Indiana State University, DePaul University's Ken Owen, and Angela Tharp from IU. Thanks again for being here. A reminder, you can ask some questions of our panel if you like. Call us at area code 812-855-0811 or dial us toll-free if you're listening to us on the Internet, for example, at 877-285-9348. You can also email us at noon at indiana.edu. Now, one of the ways that it occurs to me that that you can craft the message is by granting or indeed limiting access to high-ranking officials. What goes into that sort of decision-making process about when the president should answer something or when uh, he or she should stay away from a subject? You're actually the media specialist. Oh, I'm going to okay. turn to you well, here. Well, I, I pointed at Angela because I've been yapping too much. Um, <laughs> I think it's really important and, and, and uh, I, I, I'd be curious to hear what everybody else thinks uh, that you really limit your president's exposure to um, especially sticky situations. We had the, um, the Delta Zeta case uh, last year involving uh, the national leaders of a sorority came in and essentially um, told some women they could no longer be members and the end result was that the sorority was uh, – uh, lost its ability to have a house on campus. Um, I really thought it was important that we waited until there was kind of a final determination to put our president in front of the media and that that happened once. And uh, we had a news conference. Uh, there was a satellite truck. Uh, it was available. The clips were available uh, on our website if uh, radio stations wanted to pull them down. And, of course, we ended the news conference and an hour later the Oprah Winfrey show called and mm-hmm. ABC News wanted him to come on Good Morning America. Mm-hmm. But we were done. And I, I think it's really important that you – you put a, a boulder down and say, this, this is the time we're going to talk about. This will answer all your questions and then we're over it. And uh, the president has much bigger fish to fry than to deal with ongoing kind of you know, media squabbles or they're saying this. And so I, I think it's really important that you let your president be the president. And I think my job is, is, is essentially to be an offensive lineman and, and not block people out of his way but, but try to let him do what he does and, and yet – continue to be the spokesperson for the university in times when his voice is really important. Mm-hmm. Let me take a slightly different tack and, and say that we have a new president at the University, and we're all getting to know him, having had him on campus for a little over uh, four or five weeks. Um, and we've asked him that question, how involved does he want to be? And I think um, one of the things that's perhaps a little unique about our uh, president is he has moved back onto campus. And so 
uh, can hardly help but be uh, pretty visible. Uh, we had a fire on campus uh, on one of our high-rise resident halls that, that happily was uh, contained very quickly, but it displaced a few students for uh, a few days. And uh, that, as an example to him, uh, it was one of the things that he said he would see the value in being involved. I think he, he wants to uh, be in front of the parents saying that uh, things are under control, things are fine, and he, and he sees that as his responsibility. So uh, it's a, something of a shared responsibility. We certainly don't want to put him, uh, as you uh, said, Ken, he's got far too many other important things to be doing, but this he sees is also very important because students are number one, and um, he feels that um, his involvement and engagement in those kinds of issues is critical. Let me, let me clarify just a bit, John, too. We have a new president who's been there two and a half, three months, and he is an excellent communicator. And I would, I would have no trepidation about putting him in front of anyone in any situation. I think that the key is that uh, – now, we had a fire, too, and I agree. Having the president there and, and having him up here on the website talking about you know, the student safety and the, the fire department did a great job. That's all very, very valuable. That was back in 2002. But uh, – I do think that when you're dealing with ongoing situations, the DZ thing started in December and basically went through April, May. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you really, especially early in the process, have to – whether it's the vice president for students or whoever it is, uh, find people who are not the president who can answer all the picky picayune questions that emerge. When you finally get to that moment where you're going to put the thing to bed – when you've made a decision as a university. I think that's the time to bring the president out because it, it can become the president's issue. And I, I just uh, – I think that can be very dangerous too. And I take your point well. And I, and I was using a totally different example. And my example was one where I think it was important to have the president uh, – have a presence and be the spokesperson for the university. So they are different situations. And it, it was something that was handled very quickly. Uh, we It was important to get um, uh, on the air very quickly and reassure uh, – uh, the parents of our students that everything was fine. I want to get to a couple of phone calls real quick. Betsy is on the phone. Betsy, thanks for calling into Noon Edition. Yes, hi. Um, I'm, I'm sure you've all heard of the, I think it's called the Amherst Initiative, which has the to do with drinking Initiative. on campuses. Uh, mm-hmm. n- not so much lowering the age, but just discuss, discussing it. And I wondered how all of your uh, three universities are handling that and what you think of it. We at DePauw have uh, not signed it, uh, and uh, that was largely due. That's not saying we would sign it, but uh, the letter, the actual instrument, passed the president's desk as the presidents were having a Buckingham Palace changing the guard. Our old president, uh, Bob Bottoms, our former president, now President Emeritus, was leaving the office. The new president, Brian Casey, was taking over. I know that Dr. Casey... uh, views the issue of, of uh, young people drinking as something that, that is obviously of extreme importance to all of us. But whatever solution, and I would not call lowering the, the drinking age a solution in and of itself, you really have to have a multi-tiered approach. Uh, it has to be part of a broad look at initiatives that help young people make decisions. And uh, you know, if, if, if students do choose to drink illegally right now, uh, you know, universities have to be there to to provide alcohol education. Uh, we can't turn our backs on the problem. So, but but I think Betsy, your point is, um, your question is, did we sign it? We did not. Are we looking at it? Yes. But I think it's got to be part of a broad look. Uh, and and I think if you if you go to the Amethyst site, uh, uh, that's one of the things they're talking about. But I, I don't think that just lowering the drinking age is going to take care of the problem. There are many many issues to address here. And having had a new president at Indiana State University at about the, the same time, um, that was his decision as well not to sign. And I think for all the reasons that, that Ken has, has stated, uh, that's where we are. And rather than spend the time to repeat what he has just said, um, I, I think that's exactly the position that uh, Indiana State University has taken on this. We have another phone call. Robert, thanks for calling Noon Edition. What would you like to ask our panel? Yeah, I have a question. Uh, I don't have the figures in front of me, but uh, all I'm reading is that the uh, cost of college or college education has increased at a much greater rate uh, than inflation for almost everything else. I'd like to know just why this is. And as a sidelight to that, at IU a few months ago or something, there was an article about both the students and the faculty were very upset that they might have to attend classes or have classes on Fridays. Would that have anything to do with it? I'll listen to your answers. Um, 
Let me jump in as an old financial aid director along the path of my career and and say that I've been interested. Uh, I can remember back in the 80s when federal funds to institutions were came in the form of grants uh, to the extent of about 60 percent. Loans were around 40 percent. What's happened is that institutions have been forced to increase their costs as state appropriations and federal funding has changed. Um, and we have not kept up with um, uh, cost of living. And so uh, as those appropriations have have depreciated, uh, we have just had to put the cost of education more on the backs of students. And it's not a happy place for us to be, but that's that's where we are. Yeah, I mean, I really think that there's been a shift in, in public opinion that many years ago it used to be that higher education was considered something that was a public good. And now I think it's considered very much an individual good, and therefore the individual should be the person that is primarily paying the cost of that education. Now, a lot of us may disagree with that, uh, but I do think that uh, that has influenced why we are where we are. Uh, In terms of uh, costs at Indiana University, uh, the one thing I can say is that um, certainly in the Big Ten, um, our our costs are not increasing uh, as much as many of our competitors. And that, uh, you know, one of the big studies that looked at uh, Indiana University and other universities in terms of public accessibility uh, put us in, uh, in the top 30 for uh, being one of the most affordable uh, public institutions. So I, I certainly... I I hear and feel your pain because I think uh, the cost of higher education is is becoming uh, beyond what many can afford. And I think that uh, I think we have to look at this holistically. There are a lot of things that are leading to this issue. How do you deal with that at DePaul, which is by far the most costly school that we're talking to on this panel today? Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, I think that uh, we're comparing apples and oranges, private schools, as I'm I'm sure the caller Robert realizes, have historically been more expensive than public schools. Public colleges and universities, actually, if you look at a bar graph over the past three or four years, the percentage increase at at public universities is much greater than private schools. Now, private schools remain more expensive than public schools. I agree with Angela that we really have to look at our our priorities as a society. Uh, Do we want – do we value – Mm-hmm. Uh, the ability of, of people to get college degrees uh, from all walks of life and, and do we think government should be in the business of of helping provide opportunities for people to attend colleges. Um, I think that because of the issues that, that, that you're dealing with, you're dealing with obviously different dynamics than we are, but we're all having to pay more to heat our dormitories, more to provide food for our cafeterias and, and uh, living units and uh, it, it's a tough environment. I, we, we're all paying it at the gas pump and uh, I, I, I empathize fully with Robert because we're all consumers in this in this business. In, in the end, we're all sending people to college, uh, our kids, our grandkids. Uh, these are very expensive uh, propositions and I think down the road, uh, getting back to Angela's point, we need to have a real dialogue about what we value and, and what this is. But the, the second point I'd make about DePauw in particular is that there is the price that you see, which is in the $40,000 range, and, and the price that many people pay. Uh, there are ge- very generous financial aid packages that weren't available even when I went to DePauw back in the 1980s. And I think it really behooves parents to, as they look at colleges, not be uh, put off by sticker shock. Uh, what you see that you're paying at a given institution may not be what your child qualifies for by the time all the financial aid packages are put together. So uh, don't just dismiss a school because it looks expensive. There are many, many quality schools in this country uh, and many, many quality schools in this state uh, that it, when you start putting pen to paper, you realize the price difference isn't that great. And two things that I might add, if I may, is uh, um, if, the wonderful thing about this country and the wonderful thing about this program today is that you're hearing from three different schools. Students have choices. Um, and uh, if if transportation were the only thing we were interested in, we'd all be driving uh, uh, small, uh, inexpensive cars. But the beautiful thing is that we can make choices. This, the average student that graduates from Indiana State University leaves with a loan indebtedness of $18,000, which is, in fact, less than the price of of, of a small, compact car. And yet the investment over time, the reward and return on that investment over a lifetime of approximately $1.6 million more than a student uh, who doesn't or a person would have um, 
uh, without a college education uh, certainly uh, shows that the, the investment is well worth the, um, the return. And Robert, I actually did not answer the last part of your question, which was about Friday classes. And I, I don't have the sense that that has anything at all to do with the price tag. I don't either. I, I wanted to know if there, you know, in, in terms of crafting a university message, uh, I'm, what are some of the big misconceptions that the three of you run into when you tell people what your job is and they say, oh, do you do X and, you, and you're forced to say, no, I really do Y? What, what is that conversation like and what are some of those things that people don't quite understand about how a university message is actually you know, put together by the people who do it? One thing for me, it's a it's a constant work in progress. It's a constant um, struggle because the markets uh, are so tough, particularly in the northern tier of Midwestern states. Uh, we're not sitting in Florida, California, Texas, where uh, the, and we're a very traditional institution. So the number of traditional students coming to our institutions, um, uh, they have a lot of choices, and and there's a lot of institutions, particularly even in Indiana. So. We have to be very sharp in our in our marketing approaches. I like to think that um, the kinds of things that we're trying to do are cutting edge and that they're pushing the envelope. But it's also difficult at times to keep up with the various ways in which students are accessing information. Uh, it, it changes almost uh, from month to month in terms of the way students are are receiving information. And we have to be flexible enough to make sure that we are reaching them uh, the way that they're accustomed to receiving that information and the way they want to see it, receive it. I just want students around the country to know that the intellectual life at DePaul University is rich and different and that you have enormous opportunities if you come to our campus. And I think one of the things that uh, we probably, getting back to the Indiana point, we all try to dispel, and it's a myth, is that Indiana is somehow some wasteland where nothing happens. And we have, again, great schools here with great opportunities. The ability to walk two blocks and hear Madeleine Albright or hear a performance is something you don't have on many campuses across the nation. So that's a, that's a drum we have to keep beating too. And you asked specifically about misconceptions about our own positions. And for me, uh, one of the biggest challenges I face is that there's not a great deal of understanding about what marketing is. And there are all kinds of different definitions of that. Um, And especially because marketing can be such an umbrella category, I think it really confuses people. Um, I actually do an incredible amount of research when I'm able to do my job well. And so um, I think it surprises a lot of people that, uh, that we actually have people who are intensively looking at uh, different target audiences and focus group testing concepts and uh, doing quantitative studies to look at images and perceptions across the state of Indiana and beyond. And I think at the end of the day, the, what we do is truth-telling. I think if we're doing our jobs well – we're, we're really bringing to the front, to people's attention, what it is that our institutions do. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the cynics would look at us and think we're selling bug spray or you know, air fresheners or something. You know, mm-hmm. th- this isn't uh, uh, Madison Avenue marketing. This is basically saying if you come to this campus, here are the experiences you can have. And uh, young consumers are very astute. You cannot lie because you will be caught in a lie. So it's, it's really a truth-telling process. Well, it- well, I was just going to say it's not in anybody's best interest not to accurately portray your institution because you want whoever comes there to to have a positive experience. Absolutely. And if you attract someone to whom you know this was not this is not going to be a positive experience, it doesn't do anybody any good. I'm sometimes I'm sometimes asked uh, what I do with my summers because they assume I must have my summers <laughs> off. No, <laughs> when in fact um, the recruitment cycle is really an 18 month cycle, mm-hmm. uh, and it begins uh, with when students are are in their junior year and continues on through the point at which they matriculate at the institution. And so they overlap one another. And, and um, uh, the, the thing that I enjoy most about this business is that it is ever-changing. And uh, I look forward every day to coming to work because I enjoy what I do. And uh, the success to me is in seeing students uh, come into the university, persist on to graduation, and then uh, leave, uh, live fulfilling lives. Okay, we've had a couple of emails that have come in. Let's start with this one. Uh, begins. One of you mentioned that small classes may not be some students' cup of tea. So, is your sense that a fair number of students come to IU specifically because they don't like small classes? If so, what percentage of IU students would you guess share that sentiment? 
Angela, I, I mean, I, I, we could talk about this for two hours. I think that uh, some students don't factor small classes into their decisions. Some students want to go to a Big Ten football game. Some people uh, enjoy a, a, a large campus life. I went to DePauw and driving in here today, every time I come to Bloomington, I'm always overwhelmed by the campus vibe. We have a great campus vibe, but it's a, it's a different mm-hmm. campus vibe. Mm-hmm. It's a small community, 2,300 students, and mm-hmm. – um, so I, th- I think that you could probably have a checkbox for 80 different things or 105 different things and, and students might check different boxes. Uh, would a student prefer a small class? Probably. But uh, for some students, it's not on the checklist. It's just not on their radar. And what I would say about Indiana University is that there are incredible opportunities to have the small class experience if that's what you're looking for. Um, I think that when you choose a larger institution, you have to have um, – You have to have some ability to go after what you want. Uh, And I think that you have to be prepared to make the institution what you want it to be. If you want a much smaller experience, then you live in a living learning center or you live on an academic floor or you choose a particular learning environment that's suitable um, to what it is that you want to get out of your experience. And I think you can do all of that at IU. It's just a question of what you're looking for. And uh, when you look at – I'm not an admissions counselor, but when you look at uh, our average in terms of how many students we have in a given class, um, I want to say that it's around 20 so um, it's it's not huge. Certainly, you might have some larger lecture classes, but you're also going to have much smaller classes too, especially as you uh, proceed down the path of whatever major. And and small classes mean other things too. I chose DePaul coming from Chicago. I wanted to be a broadcaster. I knew I could be on the radio the first day. I looked at other schools and I realized I'd have to wait to be a junior before I could even run the board. And uh, I, I did actually work in broadcasting before I reformed. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but, uh, I think it, it's – you decide. I mean I, th- I think that there are some students that really feel the larger campus feels right in their bones when they're there. And there are others that just – you know, the 2,300 students, the perfect size. Uh, I can do what I want. I can reach out. So it's, it's not to say one's better than the other. It gets back to the individual. Indiana State University being a school of about 11,000 frequently uh, – were asked by students who come from small rural high schools uh, about the size issue. And, and I remind them that at a school of ten or 11,000, we are really uh, a community uh, of about that size. And like any community, there are neighborhoods within the community, and very frequently students live in those neighborhoods. And while you may not know everyone in town, you're a part of that community, and we provide all the services that one would normally expect to find in, in a community of that size. But in fact, uh, after you do break it down into small units, the, the major in which you are, and, and beyond the first-year classes, which aren't large at Indiana State in the first place, um, some of those classes in the uh, sophomore, junior, and senior year get downright small uh, mm-hmm. when you're working just with uh, students in your major. Mm-hmm. I want to get to one more phone call here. John is on the phone. John, thanks for calling in the Noon Edition. Hello. Happy day. Hi, John. When I, when I get together with friends in discussion groups, Sometimes it comes up that professors at IU, for example, are making vast amounts of money. And then it turns out that they're not actually teaching the courses. They're getting famous writing books and stuff while their teaching assistants conduct classes. And many of them can't speak English very clearly, even loudly. And so the students are bereft of the wisdom they come to seek out. It's very, very shameful that, that this can go on. I don't know. In, in small colleges, it might be the case that not only do you have smaller classes, but you have the professor actually teaching the course and uh, the kids learning something from somebody that has some wisdom instead of somebody that is a graduate student from another country that can barely speak English. Angela, is this a misconception? Well, we have it. What happens at smaller schools? Is that really the better thing? Oh, John, you're, you're asking the wrong guy because <laughs> I'm wearing my hat over here. But you are right that, that our professors do teach. That is, that is their role at a college. You know, I, I have to admit, I think that there are all kinds of misconceptions in your statement here. Um, I, really, I really think that the facts do not indicate that our professors are not in the classrooms. Uh, and, I, you know, I... 
I think that uh, in terms of, you know, some of the language barrier issues, those kinds of things, sometimes that does occur. Of course, uh, just like in life, sometimes that happens. But I don't think that that is the common experience at all. And I would agree at a medium-sized university, I know that our faculty teach classes. And, and um, so I, I, would just, I would also agree that that's a misconception. And I guess I might just piggyback on, on what Angela was saying. I think uh, one of our roles as, as institutions of higher learning is to expose students to the world at large. Uh, through study abroad programs, through our increasing uh, uh, numbers of international students, but but having people of different cultures in the classroom. Uh, we are going to be, especially a generation from now, a much different country than we have been. And uh, that's something I think that we need to celebrate. It's going to happen. There's no changing it. And and uh, getting used to people from other cultures and their, their dialects and, and everything else is, I believe, an important part of the college experience. And the last thing I will say, too, about professors is just I don't think that there's a lot of value uh, placed upon what they do outside of the higher education environment. And I don't think that I, you know, many people understand how much time and energy goes into uh, their occupation and that it's very important for them to be writing and publishing and researching because that's what makes them qualified to teach in the classroom. I want to get to one last question here in our last few seconds and that is, you know, Ken, you said a second ago you were wearing your hat. How hard is it for any of you to to go home at night and get away from the university that you spend your time working for and promoting? I, I will be the first to say I don't want to get away from it. <laughs> I live and breathe Indiana University and I came here as an undergraduate and I never left. Um, I've worked for the university for almost 10 years. Um, I got two degrees from here. And I live in Ellettsville, which is kind of a bedroom community, and yet I spend all of my time in Bloomington going to lectures and <laughs> to all kinds of wonderful events. So... I don't want to get away from it. I have the same disease. I went to DePauw and they were the best four years of my life. I would come back to campus as often as I could after I worked in television news and and had Ponce de Leon moments driving to campus, you know, figuring <laughs> I was still 18 years old when the rearview mirror I was looking back at uh, told me otherwise. But uh, there is something about being at a place that you love and, and, and serving as a champion for that place. So mm-hmm. uh, I am with you. I, I really don't put it down and I'm proud that I feel that way. And I think I I have the best job at the university, and uh, I think one of the things that I enjoy most about it is the diversity of experiences that I have. So it's not that I'm just working in an office all day and and leave and come back to that the next day. I have great opportunities to uh, interact with business leaders and legislators as well as students and and faculty and other administrators. And I just uh, love what I'm doing. In fact, I worked at Indiana State University. Uh, back in the early 70s and have come back as a result. John, thanks so much. Thanks all to our guests. Thanks to Mike Pashkash, to Mary Catherine Carmichael, to Ariana Prothero. That has been Noon Edition. We'll see you again next week. Thank you. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at wfiu.org.